When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. Rosenberg, H Bomb, Sugar Ray, Pam and Jump, Brando, The King and Night, and the Catcher in the Rye, Eisenhower, Vaccine, English Cat and You Queen, Machiano, Liberace, Liberace, let your freak flag fly. Hello again, and welcome to episode 26 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em, sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Liberace. Well, this is making all sorts of sense, Katie. (laughs) A man who makes a living playing his piano on stage... Referencing a man who makes his living playing piano on stage. Oh, slightly crazy. I have to say, um, I have a funny memory of it. It's kind of a family memory of Liberace. So he had a really big TV show. Um, I mean, that's really how he made his first big splash all across America. And um, when my older sister was young, my dad was always away at spy school or flying school. He was in the American Air Force, and he had all sorts of... uh, trips that he needed to take. And so my sister, who was probably like three or four at the time, she didn't really see a lot of him. So when the Liberace show came on and there was this man with a dazzling smile, (laughs) dimples, tickling the ivories and wearing something quite flashy, she'd see him on the screen and say, Daddy! Which, of course, my father, when he found out about this, my dad fancied himself quite the uh, the masculine <laughs> studly type. And so to hear that he was being conflated with the uh, lightness loafers lavender fellow on television, that didn't sit too well with him. Yeah, I think because I remember when he died, Katie, and I remember asking my dad who this man Liberace was. And my dad gave the sort of reaction probably dads of that generation gave to Liberace, which was quite a lot of harumphing and then a sort of darkening of the brow as if to say he's not one of us. But Katie, we could talk all day about what we know. Luckily, we have someone who knows far more than we do about Liberace, and that is Joe Kendall, the music journalist and lecturer. Joe, welcome. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much. And great to hear your memories there as well. It's lovely to see you, but I'm slightly disappointed you're not wearing a 16-foot cape. It's a bit warm for that, frankly. I looked at the weather before I came out (laughs) and uh, I ditched the train before I got the train. (laughs) (laughs) He was a remarkable man, Liberace, wasn't he? Just give us, for people who might not be aware of, of who he was, give us a little summary of who this man was. Yeah, absolutely. Well, weirdly enough, before Jimi Hendrix and people like that, I think that piano might have been the rock and roll instrument somehow, a little more unwieldy. But uh, there were several amazing piano players out there and Liberace seemed to top the lot. So uh, his act was this kind of mix of classical and pop music. It was accessible, it was fun, it was lively, it was vivacious, it was really flashy. He ended up having amazing costumes as well that went with it. And also he had anecdotes and banter and he engaged with the audience too so he was a peep into a kind of highbrow world but brought down to the working class level everyone could enjoy it 
So he apparently was quite a gifted pianist. He was a child prodigy, I understand. So he would bring this sort of highbrow classical vibe to the common man, but then he'd kind of pop it up, wouldn't he? He'd sort of put in some uh, popular songs and kind of do little mashups. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, there was no doubting that he knew his uh, classical chops and he had studied and he understood uh, quite complex classical pieces from being very young as well. But he kind of had an ear for what the audience wanted as well and he was immersed in a world that was sort of pop music and rock and roll was about to happen so there's lots of uh, uh, ragtime and jazz and that was part of his experience growing up and he would incorporate those kind of elements to sort of zhuzh up whatever he was doing. He, he did love classical music tremendously but he also liked to surprise people, probably entertain himself and also listen to what people might be looking out for themselves and you know there is an example of that that we might be talking about later on. What creates Liberace? So it's, and I'm sure we will talk about this later. You can see where his influences go in other flamboyant stage performers, other people who play keyboards on stage. But what forms him? Is there anything that we can see clearly made Liberace? Well, of course, he was so influenced by the flashy piano players uh, of the day and back in history, so Chopin and Liszt. And somehow he picked up some sort of essence of of Liszt and Chopin and this kind of like, you know, incredible, skillful, uh, ridiculous uh, sort of runs of music uh, that also uh, pulled at all sorts of emotions, you know, sort of romantic and uh, exciting and melancholy and all of that kind of stuff. He just, he pulled that through but there are a few pianists that came before him a few precursors and he came from a musical family as well but there was Arthur Rubinstein uh, he was Polish as well and um, Liberace was Polish so he had this hero in, in Arthur Rubinstein who had come over and sort of uh, spent a lot of time in America and sold out loads of concerts and there was a real buzz about Arthur Rubinstein and weirdly enough Arthur Rubinstein played with a certain kind of flair and, uh, you know, sort of uh, hand motions and would finish with a flourish and that would be something that Liberace would take on later. Uh, And also uh, Vladimir Horowitz as well. So Vladimir Horowitz, another kind of wildly exciting piano player. Can you imagine a wildly exciting piano player that people go along and see and kind of go, oh my God, and they've got palpitations and stuff. Well, I mean, word spreads. We then had, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis and Elton John and the rest of that, but I guess they can all kind of trace their pizzazz back to Liberace and then Liberace can trace his back to Liszt. So let's get back to the beginning of Liberace. Uh, First of all, that crazy name, is that for real? It is for real. That's his surname. So he was uh, born from an Italian father, Salvatore Liberace, who was also a musician. He'd found himself moving to uh, the US after being on tour. He was brought up in Naples, just outside Naples. Finds himself in uh, Milwaukee, spots a woman who takes his eye and doesn't leave. I was interested to see that uh, Liberace actually had a twin, an identical twin who died at birth. Imagine having two Liberaces. Wow. Incredible. Um, so their background was uh, pretty hand to mouth, was it? It was. It did seem that way. Um, it seemed like it was a very kind of nice and conservative community on the outskirts of Milwaukee. However, there it was the depression. The depression was about to come up. So as he grew up, the depression was there, and Salvatore didn't find much more work as a French horn player. So I think they opened. A, he opened a grocer's in their in their house. 
and the kids used to play piano out the back because there was always a piano there. They were very keen on keeping the the music there because the mum and dad were very into music. Um, that was their circumstance. And eventually, as the years go by and little Walter's getting better and better, he becomes the main breadwinner. Yeah, because he's a little bit of a prodigy. And how does he discover what he eventually becomes fantastically known for, which is being a showman. How does he kind of evolve into that? Yeah, sure. So he's playing piano at the age of four and he's really taken to it. And then he's got a scholarship at seven uh, to go to, yeah, to go to the Wisconsin, um, you know, School of Music. He is then under the care of a woman called Florence Kelly. And she has studied under somebody who studied under uh, Chopin. So there's a nice lineage there, you know, bringing that through. She has got skills and she is showing them to Walter, who has got the propensity to take these skills on. He's learning these very complex pieces really quickly. But he's still quite shy. He's got a speech impediment. Um, but the, I think the music is probably making him come alive. But just with practice, and by the time he's in, is getting into his teens, he's in a school band called the Mixers. So, you know, the confidence is coming. You know, he's called Walter Buster Keys, actually, isn't he? When Such he goes a good on stage name, that, isn't it? Buster Keys. <laughs> And it sounds like he was busting the keys as well. So he's gaining confidence. He's like, you know, he's out and about. He's in uh, parties. He's playing weddings, uh, dance classes. Uh, it starts to grow in his skills that way. And then for actually getting more showy, I think it's that Arthur Rubenstein influence. And also um, by the time he gets onto TV and how do you make a piano player visually exciting? Well, it's by sort of doing things like amazing, doing your skillful stuff, but making a big old exaggerated show of it. So lots of like flourishy hand gestures. And uh, uh, one of the things that he was actually really known for was communicating directly with the audience through the camera. And there were stories of people who were saying, oh, yeah, my grandma thinks that she's on a date with Liberace. (laughs) You know, people who weren't quite au fait with this new medium of television thinking it's one on one time. But he was... Uh, very successful at flirting with people through the camera. Absolutely, yeah. He'd been told not to do that as well. Specifically, do not do that. Address the audience that's in the in the room with you. He didn't do that at all. He just looked at the camera and he started going down the camera, smiling, uh, winking. Lots of winking was going on. Some very uh, cheesy winks. Some very cheesy winks. But he somehow gets away with it, you know. And uh, you're right. There's people who are on the other end of that, you know, in homes. And it tends to be, <laughs> as, as, as he would find out when he gets to play live again, <laughs> it's housewives, it's grandmas. There are sort of younger younger people involved. But actually, it doesn't seem like guys are put off either. It seems like men are just kind of going, wow, this guy's quite good, you know. Also, he's no threat. Mm. Well, the thing is, first and foremost, he connects with the audience and he can feel like even through the camera, seemingly, he can read the room like nobody. What was the secret for why he connected so powerfully with his audience, do you think? I feel from watching him that he is one of them. He never looks like he's in an ivory tower or, or or just kind of trying to present something to him. Look how great I am. This is like, I am playing for you. I'm really enjoying playing for you. You're very generous, and I would love to be generous in return, but I must tell you, I'm supposed to lead into the finale of my show right now, but I'm having such a wonderful time, and I have no other place to go. And you can feel that <laughs> so kind of reciprocal, like you said, even down you know, through a camera, there's a kind of reciprocal energy. He's just hoping and thinking 
Well, actually, I think it's the power of belief. We might talk about that in a minute as well. Um, self-belief kind of going, I think these people are going to have a really good time. I'm going to give you a really good time. I'm going to show you something so brilliant and so exciting and entertaining. You're going to love it because I love it as well. So I think that was, he was definitely a man of the people. He came from a conservative community uh, with kind of uh, Christian and Catholic values. It was the conservatism that probably helped build him and that he maintained as a value even with all the sparkle he was still quite down to earth and he always put the audience at the center of what he was doing so i think that was a really really powerful thing to have and coming from milwaukee and being you know like you say dirt poor and bringing himself up through that and kind of showing people you can do this you can do this you can doesn't matter what 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 you where you come from or who you are you can do this you can do it really well and you can be a nice person as well I think uh, being a nice person was a huge part of it because his warmth was genuine. And another thing that strikes me as I watch all these clips that you can find of him on YouTube is that he has a, a charisma that kind of depends on what he gets back from the audience. So it's that kind of pop star neediness that you find. Like I, I met David Cassidy once and he had that as well. It's like the more you gave him, the more excited I was to meet David Cassidy, the more kind of David Cassidy he became <laughs> and kind of puffed up and powerful. And Libra Archie seemed to have that as well, where, you know, the more overwhelmed the audience was and the more delighted and excited the ladies were in the audience, the more twinkly he became. So it was almost like a, a self-fulfilling transaction. I agree with that for sure. It's it's all based on a sort of a reciprocal feeling and the energy giving. And whatever he's giving out, it's definitely coming back to him. And we've all been to uh, gigs and shows and, you know, some of you probably play gigs and shows with an audience when that audience is excited to see you, it's such a buzz. Imagine all the chemicals that are firing off all around the whole building, you know, and making it just the best, the best experience. So everyone gets it's a win-win situation. Everyone gets a great experience. There were massive numbers as well. So his TV show in the 50s, when Billy Joel was growing up, he's getting 30 million viewers a week. I mean, that's huge. No, oh, huge. Yeah, he's on 180 networks eventually. Yeah. And once his show was syndicated, it meant that in some markets it was being played more than once a day because it was just such a eyeball grabber. So something that uh, didn't connect with all of the audience, but certainly a particular sector, was the fact that underneath all of the flamboyance, scratch the surface, and uh, you have a extremely outrageous drag queen of a man, practically. So he was gay, but he was not out, because that would have been career suicide, I assume. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's not even that long ago, and we forget what it was like, you know, because we live in the modern age, and, you know, things have changed, haven't they, uh, a little bit. But, you know, it's reported over and over and over again that in America and in, in the UK and Western world, in show business particularly, you could not, it would be economic ruin. You know, but also it was against the law. And it was, a, it was illegal for religious people. It was a sin. Uh, and also the uh, American medical authorities called it a psychiatric disease. So, you know, it's a multi-prong attack on your way of life. 
you know, these are the times that, unfortunately, he was living in. And many other people, they could not be themselves. And they were going to be, they had to actually, like Rock Hudson, mm. had to over-egg it all and be super virile, super, yes. super manly. If you weren't, people would be like, hmm, what's going on here? But then, why did people not guess? Because, as you say, Rock Hudson did an amazing job of pretending to be this Yeah, he butched big, it up. He butched it to the max. Liberace, at no point would you put Liberace in the word butch in the same sentence. Even Nobody's he, artistic. <laughs> <laughs> was it that was it that a lot of people in America, particularly his fan base, didn't have any direct experience of gay men or gay women, so they didn't recognise the the very obvious signs that we see now when we watch him? Because it seems extraordinary that, to me that people didn't just see that he was gay. Exactly, and I think that to that large section of society that was in love with him, you know, the kind of um, older ladies, the grandmas and great-grandmas and, and so on and so forth, they just felt he was very gentle and polite. Yeah. And so clean and so kind. And yeah. he had this wonderful heart-shaped face that he inherited from his mum. Little cleft chin and, you know, smiling. The dimples. Dimples, you know, he was so... He was just a clean, living, lovely lad, you know, and uh, they probably were like, wow, and totally, like I said before, you know, totally unthreatening. Yeah. There, there were whispers, weren't there, Katie? There's a point where he sues the Daily Mirror newspaper in Britain for insinuating about his sexuality. This is the quote from the Daily Mirror in a review of Liberace. A deadly, winking, sniggering, snuggling... Chromium-plated, scent-impregnated, luminous, quivering, giggly, fruit-flavoured, mincy, ice-covered heap of mother love. I liked uh, the quote continues to say uh, it's the biggest sentimental vomit of all time and also called him a purveyor of a lilac-covered hokum. So um, a great review. Lots of good words in there. Uh, Liberace was notoriously litigious because I suppose... A review like that, which is saying you are a homosexual, that could destroy him commercially and uh, creatively and personally as well. So how did he uh, respond to that? Well, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't the first fire he'd had to put out because there had also been insinuation when he was in Hollywood. So uh, he just went for this with gusto and um, he ended up having this massive um, lawsuit against the columnist, which was William Connor, and the, the column was called Cassandra. Um, that was his pen name. That was his pen name, yeah. or as, as Liberace called it, the nom de slur. Um, <laughs> so uh, Cassandra uh, just seemed sort of totally unnecessarily to lay into him. I think it's, mm. again, it was one of those instances of, you know, what's bugging these critics about him? And uh, Because you know, it was so popular in Britain, like all of Waterloo Station was thronged with people uh, when he yeah. arrived. And uh, yeah, the the crowd loved him. So it's like... There the, were a couple of, of uh, negative signs. And one of them was stop chomping Chopin. <laughs> <laughs> Yank, go home and stop chomping Chopin. Mm. But there were uh, something ridiculously... <laughs> But there's something like 11,000 people like hanging from the girders at Waterloo Station. I came in at Waterloo Station. I had a memory yes. of, you know, I walked past the ghost of, of uh, Liberace mm. arriving there for the, you know, for the, off the train for the first time after he had been performing with Noel Coward on a boat at Southampton. Yes. Um, so, yeah, he just absolutely went for it with gusto. He had to nip this uh, severely in the bud. And so he jumped right on it and he launched this, uh, this lawsuit. And they went into the uh, court... 
Liberace her, didn't go in with any like ermine or anything like that. He went no. in, in, in like a grey suit. Uh, and, yeah, <laughs> you know, he was uh, just said things simply as they as they were and absolutely denied everything. He wanted to get to the crux of some of the things that you said there, Tom. You know, there was a couple of terms, the fruit flavoured and also uh, he, she or it, you know kind of the, the, this terminology. And oh, yes. The pin, he said, uh, he is the summit of sex, the pinnacle of masculine, feminine, and neuter. And he, everything that he, she, and it can ever want. Mm, yeah, they had to stamp that out. And anyway, so he went in and he gave uh, evidence and was cross-examined. And it he worked. totally lied about the fact that he was gay. Like, oh, he would have been asked point blank. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, he won. Yeah. And he ended up with uh, damages, I think it was £8,000, that he walked away with. And it was worth it for him to clear his name. Unfortunately, that did mean that he could never say he was gay. For the rest for of the rest his of life. life. Yes, because a presumably he would have to... A Pyrrhic victory, there you go. Because he would have to, what, pay back the Daily, Daily Mirror, Mirror and then some, possibly. And, of course, to continue in this ruse to pass his hetero, uh, one of the things that he would do is pretend that he was looking for that perfect woman. <laughs> uh, girls, could it be you? Uh, and he was always uh, interviewed on the topic, and he would throw out names such as Princess Margaret. That was a, a contender, he felt. And he ended up marrying a young dancer who lived across the street from him. Oh, so, the marriage didn't happen. The marriage didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. No, he'd been associated with a few people, a few more uh, glamorous ladies, uh, various sort of uh, stages and ages as well. So Susan Hayward, uh, Gail Storm, very wholesome, you know, picking on people very wholesome. Who's Gail Storm? She was a very wholesome B-movie actress, oh, okay. dancer, you know, cute, right. really, really cute. Yeah. Uh, Rosemary Clooney. Okay, yeah. singer, famous singer. Yeah, and George Clooney's auntie, isn't auntie, it? Auntie, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mae West. Oh, yeah, that actually does make a little bit of sense. And, and the next one as well, Judy Garland. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but no, he had one um, person who yeah really came into the spotlight, which was Joni, and that was jo- Joanne Del Rio. And she was a dancer. So, okay, he's casting around thinking, I've got to sort of get a lady on my arm. And she lives across the street, so he doesn't look very far. Uh, but it seems like he actually really liked her because um, his uh, ex, later his ex, Scott, noted in his, his book that um, Lee Liberace started to become abbreviated as Lee, so I might refer to him as Lee sometimes. He actually quite disliked women, but he did like Joanne. And he showered her with gifts and uh, he paid her lots and lots of attention. Um, because, of course, as we know through history, uh, you can be a gay man, but you can also be in love with women uh, and uh, end up having uh, relationships and, and be married to women and continue in that, that vein. Uh, so they were to be married in 1953, but actually while he was seeing her, he was still having dates with men. And the other thing was, once it got out that he was seriously courting, supposedly, his next door neighbour, uh, it turns out the fans weren't really happy with the idea of, of him, of their idol getting married. And that was the excuse he used. Yeah, to... so he called it off. Katie, I'm going to make the timeout signal with my hands there and reach for a cold compress because this has been big stuff. Let's have a few adverts. Hello there. This is my friend Joe. Hi. Now, Joe plays rugby for England. Yeah, what's your point? Come on. Well, Joe presents a podcast and it's my firm belief that you should listen to it. Very interesting. And here's why. Because it's not actually a rugby podcast because, well, let's face it, there's billions of them already. No, 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 no. It's about you, the listener. 
and the jobs you do. If you're a teacher, an astronaut, a tree surgeon or a chef, then we've got loads of questions for you. The Joe Marler Show, because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. That's a great line. That's a, that is a very good line from you, Tom. Thank you, Joe. You want to find it? Search for The Joe Marler Show in your podcast app. Because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. You mentioned Scott there, Joe. So this is Scott Thorson, who is his, in parenthesis, chauffeur for five or six years, from sort of late 70s through the early 80s. Um, I spent some time the other day watching the Michael Douglas, Matt Damon film Behind the Candelabra, which is based on Scott Thorson's book, isn't it? Now, obviously, this is a film. This isn't reality. But some of the stuff in there hints at uh, quite a significant level of darkness, particularly the idea that Liberace, when he had his own plastic surgery, paid for Scott, his lover, to have plastic surgery to look like Katie, the young Liberace. Ew. Yeah, that is weird, isn't it? Very, very weird, I think. There was 40 years between them and uh, Scott had sort of, uh, you know, wandered into his life. Uh, He was a really troubled young man and he was in foster care at the time when they met and he was dating a dancer who was also helping to stage a Las Vegas show. So that's how he was in the general sort of arena for for Liberace. Once Liberace uh, had noticed him, um, he... I think it satisfied a need for him to also father somebody because he tried to adopt him too. He tried to adopt his lover? Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, covering all the bases. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're all a bit horrified, aren't we? <laughs> was there, there was genuine love and affection between them, though, was there? Despite think... all this very strange stuff and the strange background and the way think, it manifested itself. I think so, but there was... You know, 70s, you know, the 70s became what the 60s had promised and it was just sort of drama and drugs and extravagance and extremes. And he had so much money as well. He probably didn't know what to do with it. And also hedonistic lifestyle. I mean, he had other lovers. It's not like they were monogamous. So, And that's something that ended up uh, tearing them apart because he was uh, unfaithful to Scott. There were drugs, um, drugs, wigs. And rock and roll. Uh. <laughs> Can we talk about the wigs, Katie? Because the wigs slash hair pieces, they're extraordinary creations. And he's so obsessed with them that he sleeps in his hair pieces. These aren't just for show. They are for all time. Uh, yeah, uh, hair piece isn't just for Christmas, people. It's for life. Uh, I think he was very attached, wasn't he, to a certain image of himself. And, I mean, I guess... You could write it off as vanity, and certainly it was. But also, I think he felt like maybe he owed it to his public to always have a, a certain appearance. Oh, oh, for sure. And his wig maker actually introduced him to the plastic surgeon because the plastic surgeon was not only a doctor but also an entertainer. But then the wig was massively important when uh, he was ill uh, as he was getting into his final stages as, as well. 
I mean, actually, when he did, had his plastic surgery, he didn't want to have the wig off. He didn't want to take the wig off, but he had to take the wig off. Because it, as in, he's going into surgery and he yeah. wants to keep his yeah. wig on he's as having, the knife is going in. He's having the eyelids, uh, you know, eye, upper eyes, lower eyes, uh, cheekbones, all sorts of things done, and he wants to keep his wig on. <laughs> of course, when you're under sedation, he's not going to know whether the wig is there or not. <laughs> uh, I suppose you just have to like, yeah, it was on all the whole time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's been, you know, when he's when he becomes very ill, his housekeeper makes sure that the wig is on. Uh, you know, even when he's actually uh, being wheeled out of his house, when he's died, he's got to have the wig on, mm. you know, just making sure that that element is there, that, just, that identity. Right. And also his dig- dignity yeah. as well. So his boyfriend, Scott, says that after the plastic surgery that Liberace had, he couldn't even close his eyes when he was sleeping. That's how oh, tight my word. his eyes were. He said he looked over at Lee one night in bed and thought he was awake and called his name and there was no response because he was dead asleep, but with his eyes wide open. Um, but perhaps the plastic surgeon's uh, enjoyment of vodka and pharmaceutical cocaine while he was doing the <laughs> surgery maybe had uh, an effect on... Uh, his over-attentiveness to tightness. <laughs> so I'm thinking about how ironic it is that Liberace is seen as this middle-of-the-road, grandma-pleasing, old-school performer, but he's actually living this quintessential 70s rock and roll lifestyle of hedonism, opulence. I mean, he was a shopaholic to the max. He had uh, rare, rare Rolls Royces customized with piano keys down the side. He had a Louis XV desk that once belonged to the Russian Tsar Nicholas II. He had blue opaline glass candelabras from King Ludwig of Bavaria's castle. <laughs> um, he, you know, he had homes everywhere. He lived in Trump Tower. That was one of his homes. He had a, a penthouse in the middle of Hollywood. He had a Malibu Beach place. He had a place in Palm Springs and Las Vegas. And he loved to entertain. That was kind of, I found that quite a winning quality like he was actually a good cook apparently yeah and he loved to have parties and his mum would be there as well and yeah he'd be buying gifts for everybody who was who was there Christmas time I think it was just sort of walk into a kind of palace filled with presents and why do you think he was like that why was he so generous giving gifts all the time I mean it was almost like a compulsion yeah I think that for many people when they come from nothing and they get something they start to uh, overcompensate and buy a lot of stuff and also then give hopefully give a lot of stuff away. And I think that's that's what we were seeing there. So Liberace has been around for, I don't know, a couple decades by now. And he's sort of old news. And people are a little ho-hum. I mean, he's carrying on like the clappers in his private life and having a gay old time for real. And he ends up getting out of his career slump by booking an audacious series of shows at the prestigious Radio City Music Hall. And much to everyone's surprise, including his own, he gains a whole new audience with like young gay kids, club kids, people from the counterculture, and obviously people who loved him from before. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So a new era had dawned. And so he's got, uh, he's taking advantage, not that he probably knows it, of sort of the post-studio 54, uh, yeah, the counterculture, 
uh, a huge mix of of ideas and freedom that came in in the 80s really uh, and his opulence was just of course you know you had things like dynasty and stuff like that so it was all celebrated but also uh, it was like the love like kitsch was cool kitsch was very cool absolutely so he ended up with uh, you know his stage props that he'd always had he had these coloured fountains the dancing fountains he had the rock- and the candelabra don't the, forget the candelabra he had all the ca- yeah all the candelabra uh, he had the rockettes which was the, the which was the dance group that were always at uh, Radio City Hall as well uh, he had I think five cars he had the most expensive cape of his life three hundred thousand um, dollars yeah with what was six- it made from uh, it was, um, I think at that point it was fox, actually, uh, because he was trying to keep away from endangered species. Uh-huh. Having probably killed most of the... <laughs> having been responsible cute. for endangering Yeah, them. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And he had, uh, yeah, so he had all that sparkle and the sparkle in his wit as well, which was self-deprecating, but also occasionally just throwing that, that, those kind of things, just these nuggets. One of the nuggets was very early on as well, and it was, again, about the critics, and he had had some bad notices, and again, he didn't really know about that, because, but he'd just been told it. And what he said was he and his brother George cried all the way to the bank. And was he the first person who said cried all the way to the bank? Or? Not, not quite, but he's yeah. the most famous person to have said right. it, so he cried all the way to the bank. And if Katie and I were sitting there at Radio City, does he have a signature tune? Because I'm thinking if we're seeing, let's see, say we've been seeing Jerry Lee Lewis, you'd get great balls of fire. Manilow, you're going to get a Copacabana. But if Katie and I are sitting there, not in the front row because his mum's on the front row, but, but a good seat, is there one classic Liberace or is that this strange thing that he actually takes a little bit of that, a little bit of this, mixes them all together? I think you're absolutely right there because uh, he did have 200 albums that he'd recorded. 200? Yeah. That, that might be like 195 too many. <laughs> so the thing is, could we name every single tune from there? Because, yeah, he played standard, he played mashups, and he composed some tunes himself. But is he really remembered for that? I think it's more the shows, the spectacle, the connection with the crowd. Uh, you know he played stuff, but exactly, Tom, what, what was he playing? What's his big hit kind of thing? So nothing springs to mind massively but the song that I was going to re- that I was, I was referencing earlier was when he was uh, this is the first time he kind of did the little mashup and that's when he is 20 and he's playing a concert in uh, Milwaukee Concert Hall and he finishes and there's an encore demanded and rather than him launching into something he shouts to the audience what would you like to hear thank you very much and perhaps I might even have the pleasure of playing some of your favorite numbers for you. Do you have any favorites? You may be love your memory. Somebody of mischief shouts out a current hit, which is Three Little Fishies, and everyone laughs, and he goes, okay. So he does it. Right. And he plays it in several composers' styles. Little fishies and the mama fishy too. Swimmers and the mama fishy swim if we can. And they swam and they swam right over the dam. Boop, boop, did him So he does it, he runs the gamut of, you know, sort of Ratmaninoff and Chopin for, you know, three little fishies and the mama fishy too. Right over the dam. Here's the beautiful blue Three Little Fishies Waltz by Johann Strauss. That is the, that is the genesis of the new thing that he's going to create so he comes to his, his death in 1987 and he dies from pneumonia from complications from aids at that point he's one of the first high profile men to die from aids there was a shock wasn't there when it came out just as there was when rock hudson died of aids 
because it was the first time that I think it hit the consciousness of the people who would have watched Rock Hudson films or gone to see Liberace concerts, who otherwise might not have been exposed to alternative lifestyles, that suddenly this disease was there. Yeah, absolutely. And for some people, I think this is what Liberace had been scared of his whole time. He said, if anyone finds out I'm gay, that's all I'm going to be remembered for. But it isn't. He was really concerned about his legacy, wasn't he? Like that was always on the back of his mind, even when he was a younger man in the full blossom of fitness. And uh, when he's acquiring all these things for his different homes, all of these very opulent knickknacks and gugas, his thinking was, these will live on beyond me. They'll be museums to me. Like what, He was very focused on, on that. Yeah, and uh, he actually put his own museum together while he was alive. Um, and uh, not in the most uh, kind of uh, opulent of, of settings, but in a built-up area, which would probably be a bit like a retail park in the UK. So. Yeah, it's called a, they're called strip malls strip in, America, malls. in, yeah. La, in Las Vegas. Yeah. yeah, so a bit like having sort of, I don't know, Pets at Home, Wilco, <laughs> Liberace Museum, yeah. uh, Next. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but it, it, that seemed to be very successful and it was somewhere for him he was accumulating so much stuff yeah. and he wanted to, it to be appreciated by more than, than just him for a very reasonable $3.50 fee I think it was to go in and it was the third most visited attraction in Nevada wow. after the the Las Vegas Strip and the Hoover Dam uh, so it's quite popular it's just in a really weird location <laughs> I saw a very unexpectedly melancholy clip of him. It's his last ever television appearance. He has reigned supreme as one of America's most beloved entertainers. Just listen to some of his accomplishments. He has recorded... He's doing an interview on the Oprah show, and this is in 1986, and he would have been diagnosed with AIDS, but, of course, kept it a secret. And he's unexpectedly slender, and he's also unexpectedly quite soberly dressed in a very smart, sleek gray suit. And he's standing on the stage in Oprah's studio in Chicago next to his piano, answering questions from her and from the audience members. Please welcome Liberace! And she brings up the palimony suit that his ex-boyfriend Scott Dawson brought against him. Uh, where Scott was suing him for money and, you know, revealing, surprise, Liberace's gay, which then, of course, Liberace had to continue to deny. Speaking of trusting people, were you disgruntled by that palimony suit? Mm, it's sort of par for the course, you know. You become a target for some of these things, and I, I discovered... And she puts it in such a kind of insipid way, like, you know, were you thrown by that? That must have been discouraging to have happen. And he just completely lies to her face and says, yeah, I don't know, this, you know, you're in show business, these sort of things happen. I guess he was just troubled and, you know, just completely throws Scott under the bus. Were you a little anxious, though, after it all hit the press and the first time you went out on stage, were you a little I was in Toronto and I left my hotel and I went to the O'Keefe Center, which is only about a a block walk, you know. And there on the newsstands were these headlines, you know, and I go, oh, my God. God, how embarrassing, you yeah. know. <laughs> Did you want to go back to the hotel and lock the door? Yeah. I thought of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but actually, when I, got to, uh, when I got to the theater, they said, I don't know what happened, but you sold out. Overnight, you sold out for the whole engagement. 
I said, well, evidently there is no such thing as bad news. Yeah. It's all, you know, just news is news. Yeah. And you just and, think, uh, wow, the amount of I, I didn't have to hide pride that you have, that even at the stage where you know your health is failing and you're kind of dying before our eyes, you know, you still need to lie about who you really are. Yeah, exactly. Sad. He's keeping it true to his uh, the values he's already always had and that his uh, fans have, you know, this kind of, you know, Christian, Catholic, conservative value. It, he's still unshakable, absolutely. It's almost like he can't believe it himself because he did tell Scott, and it's in Scott's book as well, uh, that uh, it was uncomfortable to him to to be gay. And uh, he would think, you know, as uh, sadly many young people do, they think, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why can't I be like everybody else? So, you know, there's a, the constant struggle. There, there really is. And, you know, we, we, we see that towards the end. And I, even, do you know what? I think that the, the veil had slipped by that point I think a lot of people did realise you know who he was even though he wasn't saying it but they didn't care because they just loved him so who is he influencing then there's some obvious ones there's there's little Reg Dwight growing up in Pinner you wonder about Rick Waitman with his stage absolutely Rick Waitman and probably uh, Keith Emerson as well from The Nice you know Uh, and then you know moving forward Michael Jackson with all the sparkle and pizzazz collecting things Um, Lady Gaga Lady Gaga yeah and of course, um, he met Elvis. Elvis started a, a Vegas um, residency as well in the in the mid to late fifties, and as a way of sort of easing him into it, the Colonel had arranged a meeting with Lee uh, just to go through some stuff, get some advice, get some. We're talking about mentoring, and uh, Lee said, "Why don't you?" They swapped jackets for a start. That was for a press shot. But he also said, "You know, get get something good. Use glitz. Get yourself a white leather jumpsuit. Get yourself a cape." <laughs> some rhinestones, some lame, you know. Bigger hair. Yeah, absolutely. And they had a really, they had a bit of a nice friendship apparently. But yeah, he 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 mentored Elvis at that stage and turned Elvis into and helped probably helped turn Elvis into the entertainer, the showman, introducing that aspect because before that it was just like the the, the hip wiggle, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, you can't keep doing that for the rest of your life. <laughs> Joe Kendall, thank you so much for making Liberace live again. It has been my pleasure. (laughs) I just wish I'd worn the cape. (laughs) (laughs) So, Katie, let's say we find ourselves in the Liberace Museum and we, for some reason, are given free reign to put on and wear for the day any item we choose. Are you going cloaks? Are you going rings? Are you going ruffles? Are you going candelabra-based clothing? I'm definitely going to go for those rings. Those knuckle dusters are the thing that make my eyes go boing-oing-oing. Because if I wore an ermine cape or anything else, I feel like I'd be weighed down and I would just look like a walking sofa. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm just sticking to the jewellery. Well, that's ideal because I'm going to go for the cape on the basis that I haven't worn a cloak slash cape since, at the age of five, I unhooked the lounge curtains at my mum and dad's uh, and draped them around my shoulders to be a king and got a wallop uh, for my troubles. So a 16-foot, $300,000 cape would be right up my street. I think you could carry it off too, Tom. Could you help me carry it, literally? No. (laughs) You're on your own. (laughs) I tell you what, though... um, you introduced this tempting idea of being at his house. I wouldn't leave his house. I think I would just quite like living there. It was all about comfort and razzle-dazzle. And that's what I'm all about, Tom. Perfect. Uh, Casey, who do we have next time on We Didn't Start the Fire? <laughs>
We have a character by the name of Santayana. Who is? A philosopher. Oh, that one. Yeah. I know nothing about him, but we're all going to find out together. Lovely. And if you would like a podcast to listen to before then, let Katie and I recommend Death of a Rockstar. These are deep, immersive stories of the greatest musicians of all time. People like Marvin Gaye, Bob Marley, Jeff Buckley, Kirsty McColl, Michael Jackson, Freddie Mercury, Karen Carpenter, Otis Redding, Keith Flint, Michael Hutchins, George Michael, Whitney Houston. Katie, I'm a bit biased because I wrote some of these, but I think they're quite good. Well, I can't wait to hear them. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. This is the story of Whitney Houston, of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. That feeling. That feeling. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.